everyone. I'm Janet. I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. So Melissa and I go through all the chapters in the big book, and it generally takes about mm, three months, and then we go through it again. And last time we were on the chapter, two employers, there were about a dozen new people. So I quickly chatted Melissa and, you know, just put, turned my video off and ran and got another talk that was more appropriate for the newcomers. Um, because let's face it, two employers seems like about the least sexy chapter in the tech section, right? So here it is again, about a dozen newcomers. I have notes from other things here, but I thought I'm gonna try, I'm gonna challenge myself. I'm gonna stick to the chapter two employers and I am going to hopefully um, make it come alive for all of us because this program requires that we practice certain principles in all our affairs. And this chapter is chock full of really good spiritual principles, practical things that we can start doing. So I promise I will, you know, make this as interesting as I can and leave out all the stuff about, you know, being a boss to people and, you know, stuff that may not apply. So um, with God's help, we will all find a bit of God in here tonight. Um, so I'm going to start on page 137. The chapter starts on page 136. And he's talking about three men who were alcoholics who he knew who died because he didn't know what to tell them at the point as a boss. And he says, what irony, I became an alcoholic myself. And then this, but for the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. So, but for, and there's two things because that phrase is used elsewhere in the book intervention of an understanding person. So that means if I wanna intervene, I need to have understanding both ways the word is used, right? If I wanna be helpful to someone else, I need to understand this program, right? If someone comes to um, a doctor and says, doctor, I have diabetes, and the doctor is really kind and wants to help that person and says, here's a prescription for penicillin. Well, that doctor didn't have the proper understanding of what it was like, of how to, how to help someone. But on the same hand, if the doctor, if someone came to the doctor and said, doctor, I have diabetes. And the doctor said, oh, that's because you've eaten too much sugar. You need to lose some weight. Here, take the insulin and just get out of my office. Well, then he has an understanding of the illness but he's not a very understanding person the way that we need. So Melissa and I always say, people have the best chance of recovering when there's two things, love and correct information. So what we wanna do is we wanna be understanding people. And again, if we're new and we're not at the point where we're helping other compulsive eaters to recover, there's always someone in our life who needs understanding, our parents, our children, our spouse, our coworkers, understanding. We never know um, what someone else is going through. I did once have someone who worked for me and I didn't know what was going on. And at one point he called me at three in the morning and denied it. And I said, don't ever call me at three in the morning again. And about a year or so later, he, he killed himself. Um, Maybe now not saying I could have stopped it,
but you can be sure that the next time I was in a position to work with an alcoholic, I did everything I could to help that person. I, you know, arranged for rehab. In fact, when we first started this meeting, me and Karen's on this line, a couple of others, he came and I had him help me do the tech stuff and set up the meeting. Um, don't know how he's doing now, but I was an understanding person to someone who needed help. So it says, but for the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. But I'm going to go back to, I think it's, it's, I think it's in, there is a solution, but for the grace of God, there would have been so many more demonstrations of failures. So really, we need understanding people who are going to lead us to the grace of God. And that means God's going to come in and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's really what this program is about. So page 138, starting there, there's lots of principles we can start practicing. It says, we have imposed on the best of employers, and we can scarcely blame them if they've been short with us. So what's a spiritual principle I can practice? Don't impose on people. Don't ask people to do things for me that I'm capable of doing for myself, but I'm just lazy. And then if people have been short with me, maybe I need to ask myself, have I imposed on that person? Have I been trying to control them, getting them to do my will? So no imposing. And if someone is short with us, we look to see, as it says in chapter five, have we stepped on the toes of our fellows and they're just retaliating? So then Bill, who wrote this chapter says, okay, he was talking to a buddy of his who had an alcoholic employee and he spent two hours talking about it. So I think a principle there is we put in the time. We don't say to people, take two food plans and call me in the morning. We put in the time, right? We, we try to get to know the person. I always wanna, especially now since we're on Zoom or on the phone, I wanna find out, are you married? Do you have kids, religious practices, um, you know, what your likes are, what the weight issues have been, what's food, you know, what have you tried that has worked, hasn't worked. I wanna to get to know them as a person, not as a project. People don't like feeling like they're projects. what did he talk about in those two hours? He said he talked about alcoholism, the malady, and described the symptoms. So what is the malady of it? Obviously we can say, well, someone, drinks and they can't stop. Or with us, we overeat, we eat compulsively, or we undereat or overexercise and can't stop. But how come, right? That's, that's obvious, that's the symptom, right? That we keep shoveling food down our throat. But what's the malady? And just because there's a lot of um, newer people here, I'm gonna describe it, but you're gonna have to give me two seconds to turn my air conditioner on. Okay, so what's the malady, right? Why is it that if we were to explain to someone, either um, someone's employer or their husband or a person herself 
why she can't stop eating compulsively. It's so important, right? And so especially if someone's new or not so new and struggling and is asking that question, why? Why can't I stop even though I want to stop? Even though I understand that if I keep doing it, it'll kill me. Even though I understand what are my binge foods or red light foods or alcoholic foods, why can't I stop? What is the malady? What is the reason? And here's the best way that I understand it. Um, generally, the things that prevent us from doing things, something harmful is our memory. It talks about that on page 24. And it sounds kind of weird, but if you think about it, um, the reason I don't run into this, run across the street without looking is because I've been taught, so it's in my memory, that if you cross the street and a Mack truck comes, you will be roadkill, right? Or for me, um, I have terrible cat allergies. If I'm near a cat, I'm liable to have an asthma attack. So stored in my memory are data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if someone invites me to her house and she has a cat and I wanna go, immediately my memory will grab those data points that say, danger, stop. You know, if you go near a cat, you're liable to have an asthma attack. Sends that thought across the bridge to where I make my decisions. And I instantly remember, because this happens in a millisecond, cats are dangerous, don't go. So I tell my friend, I'm really sorry, I can't go to your house because you have a cat. Or the big book talks about, we don't have the kind of defense that keeps us from touching a hot stove. Well, I'm sure all of us have touched a hot stove by accident, right? That's why we don't let our little kids near hot stoves. They don't have it in their memory banks. Stored in my memory or data points, touching a hot stove burns you. So I'm cleaning up after dinner, about to wipe down that stove where I cooked. What does my memory do? It grabs the data points that say, danger, hot stoves will burn you. Generates a thought to run across the bridge where I make my decisions and I say, mm, can't clean that stove now, I'll get a burn. So food, our memory should work the same way, right? Best example I have for myself, um, when I was in college, I used to binge on these certain kind of cookies. It came in a box of 20. I would buy that box of 20, tell myself I'm gonna have one or two and end up eating the whole box and sometimes more. So stored in my memory are all these data points of, you say you're gonna have one or two cookies, but you're going to eat the whole box. That's what happens. You're gonna hate yourself. You're gonna feel miserable. Don't do it. So here I am about to leave my college dorm, run down the street to the Dwayne Reed drugstore to buy my box of cookies. And my memory does its job. It grabs the data points, you know, generate a thought to run across the bridge to my will where I make my decisions to say, danger, stop. You're not gonna be able to stop at one. You're gonna eat all 20. You're gonna hate yourself. Don't do it. Except when it came to food, the bridge was broken and the thought couldn't get across. I had no effective mental defense. There's a line they say at meetings sometimes, keep the memory green. You will not find that line in the big book because it's not true. We have the inability to keep the memory green. We can't remember. We have no defense. It would be like 
if I kept forgetting that cats gave me an asthma attack and I kept going into pet stores or to friends' houses who had cats and kept having asthma attacks. You would say the main problem isn't my asthma because right now I have asthma and it causes me zero problems. The main problem would be my mind, which for some reason didn't, there was a disconnect between my memory of cat-induced asthma attacks and my decision-making. You would say like, that's insane. But isn't it interesting, right? Our second step says, came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Well, if we have to be restored to sanity, it means we're not sane right now. So that's what this malady is, that no matter how much we want to stop, need to stop, know about stopping, we can't do it. So that's the malady and that's the symptoms. And he says the results and the results are, you know, we're a hot mess. That's really the result. An alcoholic can't stop drinking. We can't stop binging. So what happened when Bill told the person, the guy said, yeah, that's interesting. And that was it. And he said, I'm sure the guy will be fine because we told him if he's not, he's getting fired. Well, we know from reading Bill's story, fear doesn't do it, right? Again, if my problem is a broken memory and you try to make me afraid, it still isn't going to get the thought across. Fear doesn't do it. Never, never cured anyone. Um, so Bill just said, if this guy follows the usual pattern, because we have patterns, untreated, we're going to keep binging, says he'll go on a bigger binge than ever. And Bill said to his friend, trying to help this boss understand that he hadn't had a drink in three years, even in the face of difficulties that would have made nine out of 10 men drink their heads off. Great difficulties, great difficulties, tragic circumstances are never the cause of relapse. It's always because of our spiritual condition. Back when I was binging, I binged one day because I had plans to go to the park with my boyfriend and it rained. That was a good enough reason to binge, circumstances. In recovery, I had a double miscarriage and I didn't binge. That was one of the worst circumstances of my life. And I didn't binge because it's never circumstances, right? We know that the solution says the first line of the chapter working with others is immunity. We're protected by God, right? What kind of God would it be who said, yeah, your circumstances are bad. I'm going to take away my protection. Mm -mm. So page 139, Bill talks about the guy, the alcoholic who was told, if you drink again, you'll get fired, did drink, was fired. And it says, without much ado, he accepted the principles and procedures that helped us without much ado because he had hit bottom right? What causes people to hit bottom for, you know, it's often loss of a job, loss of a relationship. So he hit bottom and he accepted the principles of this program. That's some of what we're going over now. Um, Karen M made a beautiful list of the principles in this book. Maybe someone could put the link in the chat, but principles like honesty, self-sacrifice, and the procedures, working the steps to 
find God, learn how to surrender to God, clean up our past, and then continue to clean up our day, try to get closer to God and try to help others. So it says he told him that, and then the guy got better. So tells us that um, page 140, another principle is, it says, if you concede that your employee is ill, can he be forgiven for what he has done in the past? I think sometimes we have to try and see the backstory when someone acts in a way that's inappropriate. Um, and to sometimes see them as sick instead of mean or rotten. Um, we have to be careful, right? Because we don't want to say, well, you know, I'm like Gandhi. Hi, I'm on, on a mountaintop looking down at these poor, spiritually sick people. But sometimes we need to realize if someone's an active alcoholic, an active compulsive eater, we're not 100% well. And even, you know, I was thinking, it's like if I told you my mom um, calls and says to, um, to me, I need your husband to come fix my television. And he just fixed it last week now, or her remote. If she break, if her remote needs fixing because she has fits of rage and slams it on the floor and it breaks, well, that's one thing. But my mom has Alzheimer's and she needs my husband to come because she keeps forgetting what button to push. See, it makes all the difference in the world how you view the person. And before I knew she had Alzheimer's, when she would make requests that just seemed not to make sense to me, I would get, I'm ashamed to say, I would get annoyed. But the minute I realized something was wrong, all went away. It all has to do with our perspective. So maybe I can start looking at everyone, maybe it's not ill, but spiritually developing just like me. And how do I want people to treat me on my bad days? And I still have plenty of them. That's how I want to treat other people. So bottom of 140, top of 141, it says, when drinking or getting over about an alcoholic, sometimes the model of honesty when normal will do incredible things. Afterwards, his revulsion will be terrible. So he may have a healthy conscience, not me. I had no conscience. I would hurt people and I could care less. Um, God changed that though. But sometimes a person might have a healthy conscience and feel bad about it. That does nothing, does nothing. They feel bad, they feel guilty. But remember, the problem isn't lack of conscience. The problem is a disconnect in the memory. So a healthy conscience alone won't do it. Over remorseful won't do it. So let's see. Um, something that I hope gives people hope on page 141, he talks about um, he had had trouble and he said if in his job, if they had fired me first and had they taken steps to see that I was presented with the solution contained in this book, I might have returned to them six months later, a well man. So anyone who was here, July 11th, am I doing the math right? December, August, September, October, January 11th, 
totally free and well person. And I'll make it even better than that. In the chapter Bill's story, Ebby, the person who 12-stepped Bill, two months from the day he was about to be committed for alcoholic insanity, and people came and said to the judge, wait, wait, we got this way. We can help this person. Two months later, not only was Ebby recovered himself, but he was well enough to go to Bill Wilson and carry this message, which as we know is considered the genesis of this program. So page 142 says the person, the alcoholic, it says he, has to, he should be assured you don't intend to lecture, moralize or condemn. So we don't do that. We don't sit there and make people endure lectures Guys, this is a workshop, not a lecture, just FYI. Um, we don't moralize, right? And say, oh, how could you eat so much? Like, uh, you know, like, don't you know any better? Like, don't you see what you're doing to your family, to your kids? I mean, who of us ever got better because someone said, you know, what you're doing is just really wrong. You should stop it. And we said, oh, thanks for the information. I'll put down my cake and cookies and whatever else and go off and never binge again. Not once has it ever happened to a real compulsive eater. And we don't condemn, right? I was once in whosoever shoes I'm talking to. And I probably had muddier shoes than they do because I did some really like crazy, um, reprehensible things. So we don't condemn. And it says express a lack of hard feeling, even if the person has hurt you in the past. That's hard. But that's what love is. Love bears the cost of someone else's wrongdoing. Love means if you break my nose, I pay my own doctor bills. So if someone has come to me and is trying to get better, love means I bear some of the cost. Now, of course, we don't enable, and they're clear that if you advance someone the cost of treatment, um, it's better for the alcoholic if he pays you back. So of course, we're not gonna let people go around breaking our noses. Um, but the point, I think it's that we should always think, what does forgiveness look like in this situation? And sometimes we may have to make people pay for things that they've damaged, but we do it out of love so that they can learn and grow. The first thing I need to do is make sure my own heart is right with God. So then something that I think is good for sponsors, it says, if he says he wants to do it, does he really mean it? Or does he think he's fooling you? And after a while, he'll be able to do it. He, you know, and it says, thoroughly probe him. So sponsors, um, if someone says, I need a sponsor, don't just say, okay, make sure they mean business. So that what that might look like. Give them an assignment to do first before you decide and make it, you know, it can be a little hard. The founders used to tell people to read this book first before they decided if they would work for them. I mean, we get to see if someone means business and it may sound mean or arrogant, but it's really kind because if I start working with someone who doesn't mean business, ultimately the person is not going to succeed and what's going to happen? right? Um, they're going to fail and they're going to walk away and they're going to say, this program doesn't work. 
But if they don't mean business, I can very kindly point them to page 58, where it says, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then, then and only then, are we ready to take certain steps? So we part friends and then perhaps if they struggle later on, they remember we parted friends. This woman, Janet, seemed to have this program where she hadn't binged in a lot of years and seems to work. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll give her a call. And when they call, we never say, oh, you're back. I knew you'd be back. We just say, I'm so happy to hear from you. So they tell us, okay, once you're sure the person's willing to go to any lengths, you can suggest a definite course of action. And it says a certain amount of physical treatment is desirable, even imperative. What might that look like for us? For me, when I sponsor, it looks like a food plan. I want people on a food plan with structure. I don't you know, dictate what food plan they're on, but I want them on a food plan with structure. However, it says, if your man accepts your offer, it should be pointed out that physical treatment or a food plan is but a small part of the picture. Though you are providing him with the best possible medical attention, you know, or a good food plan that should work, he should understand that he must undergo a change of heart and get this, to get over drinking or binging will require a transformation of thought and attitude, a change of heart, a transformation. I have a note in my margin, God never mends, he creates anew. What is a change of heart and what is a transformation? What does it look like? Well, page 25 of our big book tells us, right? We've had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized, transformed our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. And he has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. That is what this program is about. It is not about food plan and tools and rules and phone calls. Yes, those things again are helpful, but it says it's a small part. The main part is getting a relationship with God. And again, um, this chapter is called Two Employers, but there's lots of other chapters and we go through all of them. There is a solution more about alcoholism, how it works, we agnostics into action that all talk about the procedure, how we get to point A where we say, I'm desperate, I get it, I have a broken bridge, I'll do anything to get better to point B, which is at the end of the ninth step where it says, by this time sanity has returned, we will seldom be interested in liquor or food not on our food plan, seldom interested, if tempted, we recoil as if from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally. That's how, so this program tells us how to get from A to B. So again, this chapter is just kind of a summary for someone's employer. And we're just trying to pick out things that might be um, most relevant here. Um, page 144, it says, okay, if someone's like in the hospital, 
have the doctor give them this information during treatment. If this book is read as soon as a person is able, meaning, you know, not while someone is dead drunk or for us, you know, usually the effects of food, um, I don't think it's not like if we're binging, we can't think straight for three days, but maybe three hours. So after those three hours, it says, well, acutely depressed, talk to the person and realization of his condition may come to him. We don't want to give false hope. We don't want to say what was said to me for my first six and a half years in OA that never helped me. Don't worry, it'll get better. It didn't get better. It actually got worse over those six and a half years. But finally, you know, if someone says, this is a hopeless illness, if you've got that disconnect between your memory and your conscious mind, you have a hopeless illness. Um, and then once a person understands the truth, I'm hopeless, then they say, what do I need to do? I'll do anything. And then we can give them the hope and the principles and the procedures. But first, a person has to feel hopeless. It's not cruel. It's actually kind, right? Who is going to take chemo unless she or he thinks they have stage four cancer, right? If, I, if I've got a precancerous mole, I'm not going to take rounds of chemotherapy. So we need to show them there's no hope. But then they'll say, wait a second, but you were like me and you got better. What did you do? And then, of course, we welcome them with open arms. So it goes ahead and it tells us your changed attitude and the contents of this book will turn this trick. And it says sometimes the percentages of success will gratify you. And that's true. A lot of success. But I don't know of anyone who can say, 100% of the people I sponsor get better. I certainly can't. I know Melissa can't. I, don't, I know no one who can. Um, I know my sponsor can't. I think, you know, she's a great sponsor. And in a way, it's like, thank God, right? Because imagine if everyone I tried to help got better, I might start thinking that I could like walk on water or something. So it helps keep us humble when we have failures. And again, I'm never... 100% responsible for someone else's recovery. I'm only responsible for giving good information and love. And they're real clear that a great deal can be accomplished by the use of this book alone. So don't worry about getting the perfect sponsor. You just want a sponsor who's gone through this program, um, has worked these steps, and can help you put your hand in God. So for me, if I were looking for a sponsor, I would want a sponsor who loved God, who worked these steps and loved God. Um, so they go on with some more principles on page 145. They say this program demands rigorous honesty. And in fact, on 146, it says, if someone gets drunk and is still trying to recover, which means sometimes people go off their food plans, but they still mean business. There's a blind spot. There's something they need help with. But if he is trying to recover, he'll be honest, even if it means the loss of his job, for he knows he must be honest if he would live at all. And I've talked about it before. I applied for a job once and I'd been fired from my previous job. And on the interview, they said, 
what happened to your last job? And I said, I quit. And I was new in recovery and I went home and I called up the guy who interviewed me. And I said, I didn't tell the truth in my last job. I didn't quit. I was fired. You know, I knew I had to be honest or this new abstinence I had wouldn't last. Um, yes, I did get the job anyway, but even if I didn't, I stayed abstinent. And that was the, the more important thing. So other things it tells us not to do, don't bear business tales. We don't need to be the, who is it? Um, Paul Revere, who was like, the British are coming, the British are coming. We don't need to be the one who's telling all the news of the office. We don't criticize other people. And it tells us what our enemies are. Look at that word, enemies for people in recovery. Resentment, jealousy, envy, frustration, and fear. We know about resentment. Um, jealousy is really a fear that I'll lose something that I have, you know, like my husband, my job, something like that. And envy is coveting what someone else has. Frustration, things aren't going my way. And boy, I'm going to throw a tantrum about it and fear, right? These things are enemies. So when we see ourselves indulging in one of them, and I use that word advisedly, indulging in them, we need to get rid of them right away. It says we don't slyly carry tales by making funny little jokes, or I would say prayer requests. Oh, please pray for Mary. She's cheating on her husband and she needs prayer. No, we don't do stuff like that. Um, and it tells us on page 146, your man should be on his medal to make good. So we wanna make good. We wanna constantly think, where did we cause harm and make good? And on page 147, it says, okay, you may think your employee can't go on a business trip because he may drink. And it says, if he is conscientiously following the program of recovery, then he can go anywhere your business may call us. And how does that apply to us? Generally at the beginning, we wanna be smart and we wanna be protective. Early on, I remember early in my recovery, my office was having a pizza party for lunch. I brought my own lunch and I ate in the back. Did people think I was weird? I don't know and I don't care. And let's say they did. 30 years ago, these people who I don't even have, have any kind of relationship with anymore thought I was weird. So what? By doing what I needed to, I stayed abstinent. So at the beginning, we do what we need to. That means if we need someone to go to the grocery with us or be on FaceTime on our phones with us when we're in the grocery, we do that. You know, we guard our abstinence, you know, as carefully as we need to at the beginning. And then it talks about, well, what if he gets drunk? What do we do? Now, again, they're talking to the employer. And they say, if he doesn't mean business, you should discharge him. And I would say the same thing for a sponsor. If you know your person doesn't mean business, how do you know? You've asked them to do things and they repeatedly just don't do them. Well, that's someone who doesn't mean business. Um, and it says, but if you're sure he's doing his utmost, you may wish to give him another chance, right? As, as sponsors, um, as friends and people in recovery, we wanna give people a chance, which means try and find out 
why the person ended up in relapse and figure out, okay, how can we help them? So if the person is, let's say, on their fourth step and is only spending 10 minutes a day, we want to say, you know what? That's probably why you're in trouble. Let's see how much spare time you have. Great. You get home from work at five. Your husband doesn't get home till seven. You don't have any kids to take care of. You can spend an hour and a half because prepping dinner doesn't take more than half an hour. You don't need to be a gourmet cook. Use your crock pot during this time. You know, we help people. So flipping toward the end, page 149, um, it has a few principles at the end. It says, it is not to be expected that an alcoholic employee will receive a disproportionate amount of time and attention. He should not be made a favorite. So we shouldn't try to be our sponsor's favorite, our boss's favorite. I mean, we can be our husband's favorite, you know, that's okay. Um, but generally we don't look to be made a favorite. Um, the right kind of man, the kind who recovers, won't want this sort of thing. He will not impose. So again, we don't impose. Far from it. He will work like the devil. So we work hard and thank you to his dying day. Gratitude. I never hang up from a call with my sponsor without saying thank you. We are people who need to practice a life of gratitude. And thank you, yes, to her. Um, and I also say my thank yous to God. I have my sponsee, Karen, she writes a thank you letter to God every night. In the morning, I list my gratitudes, but I don't just list them. When I'm done listing them, I thank him. And finally, at the end, page 150, he says, um, he's talking about people in recovery. They have a new attitude and they've been saved from a living death. Look at that. Not that they saved themselves, because ultimately this program is a search and rescue program that God has launched. And our job is to let ourselves be rescued, right? We're saved. It's like if there was um, a flood in my neighborhood and we heard the police bullhorn saying, everyone get to the roof. And so I climb up to the roof and the helicopters come and rescue me. Yeah, I climbed up to the roof but I didn't rescue myself, I was saved. And that's what we do. We, you know, climb up these 12 steps so that we're in a position where God can save us, where God can rescue us. And then what is his last line? I have enjoyed every moment spent in getting them straightened out. Our joy returns to us. Not only do we get abstinence, not only do we get serenity and peace of mind, um, and restored relationships, we get joy, which means happiness, not only in our circumstances, but in spite of our circumstances when they're not good. And that is all I have.